This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 16th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The United States was officially in existence nearly eight decades before Congress impeached a president. That's not exactly how the founders envisioned that authority to be used. Cato Vice President Gene Healy is author of Indispensable Remedy, The Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power. We recently discussed the first presidential impeachment. Hey, this one's mine, this button. This right. one, remember? I guess these are all yours. Impeach uh, Eisenhower, impeach Nixon, impeach Lyndon Johnson, impeach Ronald Reagan. That, of course, is Woody Allen and Diane Keaton from uh, Annie Hall. Uh, not everyone is as uh, gung-ho about impeachment as uh, Aunt, uh, Woody Allen's character, Alvy Singer. But we hear the I-word, impeachment, a lot now today surrounding this president. Um, you call it in uh, your paper for Cato and the indispensable remedy uh, in the subtitle of the paper, the broad scope of the Constitution's impeachment power. So why do we have this term indispensable remedy? Who used it? It's actually an adjective that uh, that both uh, James Madison and George Mason used at the Constitutional Convention to describe impeachment. Uh, Madison said it was indispensable that some provision be made for defending the community from the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. So uh, other framers used similar adjectives. Uh, it's The title just sort of illustrates that uh, this was considered to be a pretty important constitutional provision, an important safety valve, and uh, that it's a much broader power than conventional wisdom today tends to recognize. And while by no means were the framers as excited about uh, uh, impeachment as Alvy Singer, and, uh, nor did they think that it should be used quite that frequently, uh, they might be surprised at how infrequently it turns out that we've used it uh, in the 230 years since ratification. So how far after ratification came the first impeachment of uh, President Johnson? Well, Johnson's impeached in 1868. Uh, the Senate trial is that same year. Uh, it takes over 100 years, 106 years before you have your second serious attempt at a presidential impeachment with Richard Nixon who's not technically impeached because he, uh, he, he resigned before the hammer dropped and the, the full house could vote, but uh, he was uh, – articles of impeachment were voted out of the House Judiciary Committee. And then it's not till 1998 that we have the third uh, presidential impeachment attempt, third serious presidential impeachment attempt with, with Bill Clinton. And, uh, you know, so you've got three – Three uh, serious attempts in uh, uh, 230 years. It uh, works out to about one every 75 years or one every 15 presidents. And uh, some of the framers might have been surprised that a remedy that they considered indispensable has almost been dispensed with. So uh, what were the specific claims made against Andrew Johnson? And, and put, put that into context because, of course, he was not elected president. So what were the charges against him and uh, what was the, I guess, political uh, environment that he was in? Sure. 
you know, Andrew Johnson's story, uh, if it had turned out a little bit differently, uh, at least his his rise from humble beginnings might have been one of those inspiring tales. You know, any boy can grow up to be president. Uh, he was born actually in a log cabin in, in North Carolina, uh, extremely humble background, illiterate until his late teens, uh, discovered uh, a talent for extemporaneous public speaking that uh, at first served him well and then later on not so well. Uh, but he he got to uh, be president through a series of uh, maybe unfortunate events. He enjoyed some political success, had been governor of Tennessee, became a senator from Tennessee in 1856 and became the only senator from a Confederate state to stick with the Union. That gave him uh, some cachet in Republican circles uh, during the war. And when military conditions permitted it, uh, Lincoln made him military governor of Tennessee in 1862. Then facing a, a tough reelection fight in 1864, the Republicans swap out Lincoln's first term running mate, uh, Maine's Hannibal Hamlin, for pretty much the only unionist Southern Democrat on tap, which is Andrew Johnson. And uh, Johnson, you know, he gets off to a rough start. There's a famous incident in his inaugural uh, speech as vice president where he is just completely plastered and uh, everyone in the Senate chamber can see that. He actually he visits uh, his predecessor, Hamlin, in the morning. He doesn't feel that well, asks for a glass of whiskey, has several, and uh, then he gives a speech, his maiden speech as, as vice president, and he's gushing about his humble origins. Uh, the people of the United States have made me what I am. People are everything. Uh, he starts calling out the uh, assembled cabinet members by name to re remind them that they derive their power from the people, forgets the secretary of the Navy's name, has to ask for it. And this whole time, Lincoln is staring at the floor. He's mortified. And Hamlin, who's sitting right next to him, starts tugging on Johnson's coat like, stop, stop. And then six weeks later, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated by John Wilkes Booth and Andrew Johnson is president. All right. So that's the political background. Yeah, that's the rough start. There's more to the the environment that he enters into. Actually, the Republicans, the radical Republicans uh, expected him to be at first to be tougher on Reconstruction, tougher on the South, uh, maybe even than Lincoln was. Uh, Johnson, part because of his background, uh, really detested the planter class in the South. So they expected that he would enforce a pretty tough policy. Actually, fairly early on, uh, Johnson uh, adopts a lenient policy for Reconstruction. He makes broad use of the pardon power uh, to rehabilitate uh, former Confederates and uh, broad use of the veto power, vetoes extension of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, Civil Rights Act. And generally, the, the Republicans view this as an aggressive exercise of presidential power that defeats the war aims and is so lenient on the South that it uh, almost restores the, the, uh, the South to full political rights 
uh, without having to pay the price and uh, to change to fundamentally change uh, Southern institutions other than uh, agreeing to the Thirteenth Amendment. So, a lot of times, uh, you know, maybe when you had high school history, this is treated as a policy dispute, and I think it's uh, really something much more than that. It kind of trivializes it to just say they disagreed on policy. This is pretty. These are pretty fundamental issues, and that's the backdrop to how Johnson ends up getting impeached. All right. So he was uh, not well liked by a, a broad group, broad swath of uh, political people in, in Washington D.C. and those representing uh, some states. What were the specific claims made against him uh, for impeachment? Well, nine out of the eleven charges against him were based on the Tenure of Office Act that Congress passed in 1867, and it said essentially that cabinet officers couldn't be removed by the president during the term of the president that had appointed them without the advice and consent of the Senate. And it further specified that uh, if you violated the act, it was a quote unquote high misdemeanor and presumably impeachable. And Johnson sort of takes this bait uh, eventually in February of 1868. He sacks uh, his secretary of war who was appointed by Lincoln, uh, Edwin Stanton, uh, who was a key ally of the radical Republicans on the Hill. That results in his impeachment almost immediately. Resolution is voted out of committee that day. A full House approves it three days later. And what's strange about this is with the backdrop of this broad constitutional fight over who rules Reconstruction, Congress or the president, uh, with the stakes being extremely high, they, they choose this really narrow legalistic cause to that that makes up the bulk of the articles of impeachment. The uh, impeachment scholar David O. Stewart in his book on the whole episode puts it this way. He says, they, the Congress charged the man who betrayed the sacrifice of Union soldiers while abandoning the freed slaves to lives of wanton oppression with misapplying a personnel statute. So it doesn't really seem to be uh, it doesn't seem to really capture the fundamental uh, fight between uh, Johnson and Congress. And uh, there's kind of this uh, slapstick element to it as well because uh, Stanton refuses to give up his office and uh, the, the appointee for acting secretary of war keeps coming by, you know, saying, give up your office and uh, he's barricaded in, he won't do it. And uh, Stanton actually... Uh, has a D.C. judge swear out a warrant against uh, uh, Lorenzo Thomas, the acting secretary of war, for impersonating the secretary of war and violating the Tenure of Office Act. Meanwhile, Stanton's wife thinks he's making a fool out of himself. And when he sends home to get uh, you know provisions and food and clothes, uh, she won't provide them. She, can, she comes by and starts yelling at him and... Uh, you know, he's sort of uh, camped out in this office. Uh, you know, there's this fight over who's actually the secretary of war. Given what you, you and I have talked about with respect to impeachment and what you've written about impeachment, uh, it seems that, and maybe I'm wrong, that Congress was really focused on finding a specific law that the president had violated, in their view, uh, to use as a 
cudgel for impeachment. And, and does that did are we already far away from the high crimes and misdemeanors that the the founders envisioned? Yeah, I think part of the reason for the legalism, the uh, technicality of violating this statute, uh, the idea that impeachment uh, requires a specific crime uh, has been with us a long time. Uh, you want to be able to say, here's the letter of the law, here's how the president violated it. In fact, there are a couple of earlier efforts, articles of impeachment that are drafted against Johnson that, that fail that were much broader, that, that included items like abuse of the pardon power. In some of the charges in the earlier attempts uh, are really closer to what Congress, uh, what, what Johnson's main opponents in Congress were, were offended by, but they settle on this uh, you know, pretty technical personnel statute, which is actually of dubious constitutionality as the way to get him. What about the inflammatory and scandalous uh, speeches attacking Congress? Right. That's uh, so. Not all of it is. Nine of the eleven articles are the Tenure of Office Act, but not all of the articles of impeachment are so narrowly legalistic. The most interesting article of impeachment is the one you, you're referring to. It's uh, Article Ten, and it doesn't allege a crime. It doesn't allege an abuse of power. It basically identifies a series of speeches that Johnson gave in 1866, quotes heavily from them, and says, uh, among other things, that uh, he's impeachable because he intended to, quote, excite the odium and resentment of all good people of the United States against Congress. And most of us would say that uh, in most years that Congress does a, a pretty good job of that on its own. There's a, a sort of smart-ass poll taken a few years ago where uh, the pollsters asked people uh, w whether they would rate things like Nickelback and colonoscopies higher than Congress, and, and they did. So Congress's reputation has been pretty bad for a long time, but in Article 10 of the Johnson impeachment, part of the case against him was making a series of speeches calling Congress into disrepute. So it may not be as ridiculous as it seems, however, in the context of the, of the times, even though most of what Johnson was saying in these speeches probably wouldn't shock us today. It was a serious departure from presidential norms at the time. He, he looked like a, a caricature of a crazed demagogue. He dragged uh, Ulysses S. Grant, his chief general of the army at the time, along with him on these speeches, and Grant was completely mortified. He wrote to his wife that he'd never been so embarrassed in his whole life than to have been forced to sit there while Johnson made a fool out of himself. So in a sense, this article was an impeachment for unpresidential behavior, conduct unbecoming, behavior that was in the... the the phrase that's popular today, not normal. All right. So what was the the final analysis in terms of the it, the House impeaches a president, the Senate votes to whether whether or not to remove the president from office post-conviction? Well, he, as we know, it's not a spoiler uh, alert exactly, he survives the Senate trial by one vote. And this was a, pretty much the hot ticket of the season. 
There's not a ton of entertainment in D.C. in 1868, although it happens that Charles Dickens was in town for his uh, American tour during the impeachment trial, and he wrote to his editor that it's a good thing that they made a lot of money early on in the tour because uh, the theater for for Dickens was just emptied out as soon as uh, the impeachment trial started. The Senate printed uh, about a thousand tickets every day, and congressmen were besieged with uh, requests for these tickets. And uh, you know, it, it pretty much just shut down the the town. There were enough Republicans in the Senate at this time, well more than two thirds, uh, more than enough to nail Johnson on a party line vote. But in the end, he escapes by a, a single vote, in, in large part because certain key Republicans decide to acquit him. There's a fairly dramatic scene where uh, the Iowa Republican James Grimes, who's suffered a stroke, is carried in bodily so he can vote not guilty. And only three of the 11 articles even come to a vote. In May, they, they vote first on the last article, which is a bit of a catch-all incorporating earlier charges, fails by one vote. Uh, they adjourn for 10 days. They vote on two more articles of impeachment, uh, same result, writings on the wall, and uh, they don't even get to the remainder of the articles, and Johnson survives. All right. So, you know, if, you know, when I read history and when I studied history in high school, it was always impeachment was this substantial mark on uh, Andrew Johnson. And it's always is always viewed that, at least in my understanding at the time, this guy was a loser, and he got what he deserved, and that's all we need to know about that is that he was the first impeached president, and that's the only notable fact against him, or no, only notable fact about him. My recollection is, uh, yeah, you 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 learned a little bit about Reconstruction, and uh, then you. Uh, sort of incongruously learned that the, the whole impeachment effort was ridiculous and uh, it, it just goes to show you how bad partisan impeachments are. I think, uh, you know, the, the view of historians and the popular view of Johnson has uh, changed somewhat over the years. You know, for a, a period of time, there's uh, in the popular view, there's, there's this sort of lost cause, gone with the wind view of Johnson and the Johnson impeachment. There's a, a movie from MGM in 1942 called Tennessee Johnson that takes that view. And let's play a clip from, from that right now. He was the only president the Congress ever impeached, and he fought gallantly to save his name and office. His name was Tennessee Johnson. Senators, the issue before you and before the whole country is not my fate as an individual. It is the issue of union or disunion. So that was the Hollywood version. And the Hollywood version was, you know, the conventional view for for quite a while. Uh, JFK's uh, uh, book "Profiles and Courage" uh, about heroic senators. It has a whole chapter on the Republicans who voted to acquit Johnson, uh, particularly uh, Kansas Senator Edmund G. Ross. Uh, 
JFK writes that these men may well have preserved for us and our posterity constitutional government in the United States, which is a pretty exaggerated claim. Even as recently as the Clinton impeachment, uh, there are historians and legal scholars who pointed to this episode as an embarrassment and a mistake. And uh, they, you know, there was there were politics involved here. Uh, most of these folks didn't want Clinton removed from office, so they cited the Johnson example as a as a real embarrassment and a shameful episode in American history. If that was the conventional view, that that view has uh, eroded what somewhat. What do we learn? Uh, there's from work as scholars like uh, the uh, historian Michael S. Benedict, you know, have come around to a, a more balanced view of the Johnson impeachment. I think it's less likely to be portrayed these days as a unjustified partisan abuse of power, an example of what not to do. So. You know, the the historical view of uh, impeachment episodes can change over time. What do we learn from the Johnson impeachment about this? I guess it's – I can't say it's under the radar because there are lots of people who are pledging to run for president with impeachment as their – as sort of a – a key, ele key element of their run, or at least there are people spending a lot of money pushing for it. Uh, what are we uh, to take from the Johnson experience here about this effort to impeach Donald Trump? A couple of things. It definitely illustrates how extremely hard it is to remove a president. It's not clear that the framers understood how hard they were making it. The requirement of two-thirds for conviction in the Senate uh, came very late in the convention and it's approved basically without debate and maybe without much notice. But it's it's a really fundamental change from a majority to remove the president. They also didn't quite foresee the uh, the rise of political parties and partisanship, uh, although they they were aware of the dangers of faction. They didn't the, they hoped to avoid the the worst dangers and. The rise of political parties, that uh, two-thirds requirement uh, has tended to mean that to get anywhere close to removal of a president, you either need extraordinary historical circumstances like the exclusion of a large number of states from representation uh, as you had in Reconstruction in the Senate trial or you need uh, you know, extremely bad behavior as you had with uh, Richard Nixon. So whatever the framers envisioned as the standard for high crimes and misdemeanors. And I think they uh, had a broad view in mind, broader than we typically recognize today. The math makes it really hard to remove a president. I'd say another lesson of it is when you impeach a president, you should definitely uh, pay some attention to the legal standard. Uh, you know, There's the famous quote from Jerry Ford about how impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives thinks it is. The episode with the Tenure of Office Act uh, says maybe not because the uh, grounds for impeachment, you know, some of the Republicans who voted against, who voted to acquit Johnson made public explanations of their votes and a lot of them said, well, not certain that he violated the act. If he did violate the act, didn't rise to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor, uh, and uh, it's not clear that the act is constitutional. So if you uh, go to war with the wrong 
charges against the president, then uh, the legal standard can can matter as much as the structural requirement of, of two thirds. But on the other hand, I, I think the Johnson impeachment might also suggest that it's not true that there's no point in an impeachment effort that doesn't result in the president's removal. The whole impeachment fight basically got Johnson to stop obstructing Reconstruction. Uh, It achieved some of the policy aims of the Republicans. It arguably vindicated some norms about presidential behavior because his behavior on the the stump, uh, the speeches that got him impeached in uh, Article 10 of the charges against him were, were viewed as so beyond the pale. And as you suggested, uh, you know, one of the main things you remember about Andrew Johnson is he's one of two presidents who actually got formally impeached by the House. And that's a black mark on anyone's historical reputation. And it's something that presidents really want to avoid, even though the chances of it seem to be uh, very slim historically, presidents don't want to be one of those uh, very few chief executives that end up uh, with impeachment in the first paragraph of their biography. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of Indispensable Remedy, the broad scope of the Constitution's impeachment power. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>